The sky is darkening and the air is thick with an imminent threat. A woman next to me says, it's not so bad if you lie flat. The planes miss us then. I'm a time traveler wandering through periods of history and now it's the 1960s. I am with a crowd of people. We seem to be in a commune and we are living in Cambodia. I begin to recognize people. I see Marshall, and then Allen Ginsberg approaches me and vaccinates me with a huge dose of LSD. I'm not ready for this yet, I protest. I ask questions. Why do you all sit facing the same direction instead of like a living room? They ask me, how did this all happen? as if I'm a seer because I'm from the future. What about peace, I shout as we drive around a battered city. What happened to wanting that? I struggle to wake myself up, but a small barefoot girl in a long flowery dress reaches for my hand and whispers to me, please don't leave yet. For all its nightmarish dystopian imagery, I wasn't surprised by some of the details of this dream. Communes, LSD, Allen Ginsberg, and my friend Marshall. It seemed like all my dreams lately were about the past, and about Lewis, and the 10 days we spent in Newark, and trying to make sense of a time that was still so haunting to me. This dream of time travel took me back to an even earlier part of my childhood, of watching the movie The Time Machine. One amazing scene had always stuck with me. The Victorian inventor starts up his machine for the first time with what looks to be a big glass doorknob. The machine remains stationary. It's the world around it that begins to move. And there's this view outside the window of a clothing store across the street The fashions on the display mannequin in the storefront keep changing. Hats come and go. Hemlines go up and down. It's like a flip book of styles throughout the decades. I didn't have a time machine, of course, or a magical glass doorknob, but I went into the basement for the few pieces of clothing I had saved from the 1960s, a suede purple vest with embroidered stars, a velvet reversible hat with a long tail down the back. The vest was way too tight when I put it on, under the arms, but the hat still fit. I went back upstairs, put on some Country Joe and the Fish, sat at the computer, still wearing my purple hat, and started checking out TV guide listings from 1967. I spotted Coronet Blue, I remembered the star, handsome, blonde, Frank Converse. It was a show about a guy with amnesia. Can't remember anything. He could only remember the two two words, words. coronet blue. And he was on this desperate search for clues about his past. The episode I found was a silly and sanitized take on student rebellion on college campuses, starring a very young John Voight as a student activist. How would 
you like to join me in taking over the administration building? The student protest leaders are staging a sit-in in the lobby of the administration building. The Fugitive. The Fugitive was the show that Lewis, Gary, and I watched during our 10 days. Dr. Richard Kemble, an innocent victim of blind justice, falsely convicted for the murder of his wife. We had all eagerly watched the finale of the show, which aired on August 29th. To search for a one-armed man he saw leave the scene of the crime. Lewis was leaving the next week for college to run before the relentless pursuit of the police lieutenant obsessed with his capture. My husband tracked down the two-part finale and we sat down to watch it together. I didn't know if my husband knew about the final twist, but I knew what was coming. Lieutenant Gerard was going to be revealed to be the killer. Lieutenant, I saw that man, Johnson, murder Helen Kimball. I was shocked. There was no trick ending. The one-armed man was the killer. I had it wrong, which was very disorienting. I had thought there was one thing, at least, that had lodged in my brain as fact. But there it was. The video was undeniable. My daily music ritual in those days started in the mornings, before showering, before breakfast, before anything. Barely awake, I would choose an album to start the day. I could create an instant atmosphere with one drop of the needle. And back then, we were all not just listening. Everyone was wanting to learn guitar, auto harp, mandolin, including me. Donovan, Jefferson Airplane, The Beatles, Bob Dylan. I wondered if I remembered any of the songs. My old guitar was in the closet. The case was threadbare and worn. I took the guitar out and started noodling around. I've had this guitar since I was 14, a classical K with nylon strings. There's a faded mark on the body of it where I'd glued on a blue star. The star was gone, but my original pink paisley thumb pick was still in the case. I always found the guitar a little difficult to play because it had such a wide neck. Doesn't sound very good. D. I feel very depressed because I, up until some years ago, I remembered how to do this. I remembered a number of songs that I would play and I can't make my fingers bring back the memory. And I didn't think they'd ever go away. That doesn't even sound like the right chords. Damn it, it feels terrible. It's like losing the memory in your body. It's like you, 
he just became like completely incompetent. There's a song that I thought that Marshall wrote. Um, there's like a little riff that went. Oh, this would be really like impossible to remember. Maybe he would remember it. I called my friend Marshall and asked about our playing guitars together back then and who he was listening to in those days. When did you start to play guitar? Oh, I was probably 15. What kind of guitar did you have? It was a little acoustic. The main thing I remember about it is that at some point I painted it the colors of a, a Viet Cong flag. <laughs> Sorry. I did. I painted it. Half was red and half was blue, and then there was a, a yellow star in, in the middle. Wow. Signs of radicalism to come. Yeah. No, that by then I was already a radical. <laughs> you know, that was that was like after I started the the week wake SDS chapter. You know? Oh, you're the one. Yeah. Well, we all yeah, a bunch of us started it together. I think. Who taught you to play? Did you teach yourself? What kind of songs yeah. did you learn right away? Oh, I don't. Rem- I mean, I just bought chord charts and started, you know, practicing chords and then started playing stuff. You don't remember songwriters that you wanted to sing certain songs. Oh, sure. No, I remember what I was listening to at that time. I think I was listening to a lot of, like, country blues. So I was listening to uh, Mississippi John Hurd and Blind Lemon Jefferson and then Lightning Hopkins. And and then, of course, there was sort of the white folk music, you know. I mean, Tom Paxton and Phil Oaks and Peter, Paul, and Mary and, and all that stuff. And Eric Anderson, yes, you know, and, yes. and all of that stuff. And Patrick Skye and... Then I got into Doc Watson, you know, and mm-hmm. I learned I learned some Doc Watson finger picking pieces and and a lot of Dave and Ronk. Listened to a lot of Dave and Ronk. Played some of his pieces. I learned Come Back Baby. I learned how to finger pick Come Back Baby. You know, oh. I still I still can you play? You know, yeah, I mean I don't play it a lot, so I don't play it well. Eventually, I played the mystery riff for him, hoping it might spark a memory. So memory is coming in these dribs and drabs, but I'm going to play you the the little tiny fragment, and you'll tell me whether it it triggers anything. Well, I'll tell you two things. First of all, that did not sound half bad at all. That didn't sound bad? (laughs) No, it re- I'm serious. I'm being serious. That did not sound bad. That sounded like a guitar player playing a little riff on a guitar. Oh, okay. And I did not write that, nor did I teach it to you. Oh, God, I wish we weren't on different coasts. I agree. Really. I agree. We could we could work on these pieces together. <laughs> I know we could have. Uh, well, we'll be so much fun getting oh, together and yeah. making music. Oh please, it would be incredible. It would be incredible. That's it. That's it. So won't work, and my baby has just left town. That's it. You know it. I'm watching a cockroach crawling in an old bean He says, when your baby's left baby's you left up, up, it's, it's tough, tough to, be to be a man. A man. I'll let you know.
let you get back yep. to your life, Marshall. And we are going to well, talk this again. this is my life. This, oh, <laughs> bless your heart. Makes me feel yeah. alive. Me too. I have goosebumps. <laughs> I have goosebumps. All right, yeah. I'm going to go. And um, After I hung up with Marshall, I picked up my guitar and kept strumming. Although I had been trying to retrieve more memories of the actual 10 days in the summer of 1967, I hadn't gotten quite as many as I'd hoped. I still didn't know why my parents let me stay away so long, how I got back and forth to Newark, and where we were staying. Marshall had one conviction, Lewis had another, I still wasn't sure. I started to form the chords for Richard and Mimi Farina's Good Morning Teaspoon, a song about cocaine. As I started to sing the lyric, Give Me Back My Brain, I got a familiar uneasy feeling, and I needed to stop. Please turn that off. Please. Please turn it off. It was a woozy feeling, a physical one, a feeling of dread that brought me back to a time of too much happening too soon, too fast, a thing spinning out of control. I remembered being at a Jefferson Airplane concert in Boston in the fall of 1969. Just a few months prior, the band had played at Woodstock the epitome of what the peace and love movement represented. Four months later, the airplane played, along with the Rolling Stones, at a concert in Altamont that turned dark and ugly, with an audience member being killed. At the Boston show, I'm sure I was stoned, as was most of the crowd. The band was very fired up, defiant, singing, now it's time for you and me, got a revolution. Suddenly, a dancer came out from the wings, proudly marching across the stage, stomping. She was virtually naked, wearing just a see-through American flag. It was exciting. I'd never seen anything quite like it before. And now it seemed like anything could happen, and I felt afraid. Would everyone wind up on the stage naked? How would it all go? I remember telling myself, be cool, be cool. Although I had misremembered the ending of the Fugitive TV show, one memory had always been clear and painfully accurate that a few days after that last episode... Lewis left for college, and I was devastated. Gary retreated back to his dark room, and I returned home to my senior year in Fords, New Jersey. We all dispersed. Our idyllic time together had ended. Even though Lewis and I promised to write and visit, I was dreading our separation. But I told myself the same thing I did often in those years that followed. Be cool. Be cool.
Take them back, baby Mama, please don't go Yes, the way I love you You never know It's gone back, baby Let's talk it over Ten Days in Newark is produced by Scott Shapley and me. I'm Benny Klein. For more information, 10daysinnewark.com.